Hello, and welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast. My name is Sean Little, and I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City. Thank you for joining us. In today's podcast, you'll hear part two of a mini-series entitled A Foolish Father. In part one, we focused on the beginning of one of Jesus' most famous parables, commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. Today, we'll look at the conclusion of that parable, paying special attention to the second son, the older brother, and his relationship with the father. In 1954, a book was published that included a poem. The poem begins with a pair of lines that have taken on lives of their own. And I wonder if you've heard either of these lines before. The poem starts, all that is gold does not glitter, not all who wander are lost. Who's heard either of those lines before? Yeah. Prior to my study, I had no idea where these lines came from. I had heard them uh, in Kanye West lyrics and show Baraka songs. I had seen them printed on coffee mugs and posters, t-shirts alike, but I had no idea where they were from. Come to find out, this poem was written by J.R.R. Tolkien and included in his famous novel, The Lord of the Rings. We'll put the poem up. I want to read it in full. I think it's beautiful. Here's the poem. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadow shall spring, renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. If that's true, that not all who wander are lost, today we'll see that the equal and opposite is also true, that not all who stay home are found. Turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke chapter 15, as we continue with the mini-series entitled, A Foolish Father. Last week, we began looking at the first part of this famous parable, commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. We learned that Jesus uses parables as word pictures to express common takes on complex truths. And we noticed that this specific parable was the third consecutive parable that Jesus shared with a divided group of people, divided along the lines of high society and low society. So whatever can be said about the differences between first century Israel and 21st century Indiana, it certainly seems that we have this in common. After all, our society is divided in a very similar way. Upper class and lower class, the haves and the have-nots, the educated and the uneducated. Therefore, that old adage rings true, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Now, These high society folks were the Pharisees and the lawyers. They were full of social, political, and economic clout. They had power and they had influence. Whereas the low society folks, the sinners and the tax collectors, were people who had been dealt a bad hand. And they had made bad decisions. And they had bad reputation. And while it's safe to assume that everyone in the crowd had their own skeletons in the closet, as we all do, even this morning, the folks at the bottom were defined by theirs, their mistakes, their shortcomings, 
their sins. And you know what is incredibly problematic about that? Failures, shortcomings, sins, they are an instance. They're not an identity. Shortcomings happen, but they're not who you are. And again, we all have skeletons in our closet. We are all human. I'm reminded of an old Scottish preacher who I listened to who said, if y'all knew everything that I'd done, you'd never listen to me. And if I knew everything you had done, I'd never preach to you. Right, especially for him, yeah. So when you think about your own failures, and when you think about the failures and shortcomings of the people in your relational world, remember that failures are instances. They're not identities. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that, how people who have less power are often defined by their shortcomings, by their mistakes. Because again, the same is true today. I was doing some research and discovered that almost 75% of the nearly 700,000 people in local jails are there for nonviolent offenses. Whereas according to Matt Tybee's fascinating book, The Divide, Not one big bank CEO responsible for orchestrating the circumstances of the 2008 financial collapse, the housing crisis, who wiped out 40% of global wealth primarily from working class people, not one of them have been in prison. And do you know why? Because these CEOs are just like the Pharisees. They're full of social, political and economic clout, they have power, they have influence. This gives them autonomy, position, flexibility, options, and choices. Whereas the sinners and tax collectors, culturally confined by their lower standing, they have none of that. They don't have the power. They don't have choices. They don't have the tools to use when their circumstances aren't as they like. So even if they want to affect change, they can't. They're boxed in, and the feet keeping the lid closed are those of the Pharisees and the lawyers. And let's just try to get a hold of this for a minute before we jump into the passage. Jesus isn't a nice teacher teaching nice things to nice people. If you think that and you encounter him in the scriptures, you'll be woefully disappointed. His teachings happen in a specific time, in a specific circumstance, and he speaks to very specific groups of people. And this group is staunchly divided by their socioeconomic realities. So do you think that Jesus has anything to say to us in America in 2017? I suggest that he does. As many of you recall, last week we began looking at Luke 15. We looked at verses 11 through 24. If you weren't with us, you can hear the sermon through our City Church app or our podcast. And if you're joining us online, I want to give you a shout out. Quickly, here's a review of the beginning of that parable. There's a father with two sons. His younger son asks for his portion of the inheritance. He receives it, travels far away, wastes all of it, is left with nothing. When he comes to his senses, he returns to his father's house and receives a royal welcome, a party, in fact. And on the heels of that party is where we pick up at verse 25. So again, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 15, 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. 
It's a real party. This is a good party, music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you have never given, never given me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So while we were introduced to the younger son in the beginning of the parable, here we're introduced to the older brother. Isn't that peculiar? He's not referred to as the older son. He's referred to as the older brother. That phrase is significant. We'll talk about it in a minute. So jot it down in your mind. But for now, just like uh, we did last week, I'm going to make four observations about the older brother. And here they are in the beginning. My wife said, you need to make the points in the beginning because I got completely lost. So here are those points. Some of y'all are laughing. You must have been lost as well. He's dutiful. He's distant. He wants what he thinks he deserves. And he's disoriented. First, he's dutiful. We see that in verse 25, the older son was in the field. And we hear that in verse 29. Look, all these years, I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed you. The older brother takes immense pride in the fact that he's dutiful. He probably wakes up early. He probably has a routine. He's like the guy at your job that always shows up first. He doesn't show up first because he loves his job. He loves showing up first. He loves beating everyone else to the office, getting the best parking spot, making sure upper management sees him on the way in. Good morning. And maybe more than anything, what he loves is what he thinks it means about him, right? The way it affirms him and strokes his ego, tells him that he's good. And not only good, but better than everyone else. He works harder and tries more. He's responsible and diligent. He's dutiful. I mean, everybody else was partying. He heard the music and the dancing. And when he wanted to know what was going on, he had to call one of the servants because the servant was partying as well. He had to have been because he gave a report about what was going on, how the party started and what it was all about. But the older brother isn't at the party now, is he? No. Where is he? Yeah, he's in the field. You know how that goes. Again, think about the guy at your office. A few of y'all decide at the end of the day to go out and get some drinks, but not this guy. Now, I'm going to stay back. I got some work to take care of. You guys go on without me. Again, in addition to what we've seen and the fact that he's probably the only guy who's still in the field or at the office, what we hear in verse 29 is even more telling. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Whoa, man chill out. Do you know why that happens? Why people fly off the handle like that? 
not only here in this parable, but here and now, I mean, in our lives and in our worlds, in our relationships. Do you know why people snap over such seemingly small issues? Well, if what we've seen and heard from the older brother is any indication, it's because his efforts to be dutiful give him a sense of security. Self-esteem and self-worth, self-assurance and self-confidence. His duty tells him that he deserves anything. No, he deserves everything. After all, he's been slaving away and he never disobeyed. But do you know what I find incredibly odd? Nowhere in the parable does the father ask the older brother to slave away. And nowhere do we get the sense that he's the type of father who would even make that request in the first place. So where did the older brother get the notion that he should slave away, that he was expected to never disobey, and that somehow either of those were meaningful to his father? When he finds out that his dutifulness doesn't impress his dad, doesn't merit anything from him, doesn't indebt his father to him, he loses it. He can't handle that. And if you were to apply that to your life, how would you respond? How does it make you feel to hear that your duty doesn't impress God? Your hard work isn't the source of your blessing. Your self-righteous rigidity isn't what your Father in heaven wants. He doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want that from you. How does that make you feel? If you're anything like the older brother, you don't like it. And it's probably the source of your relationship problems as well. It's fascinating what you can find out about a person, about their psyche and what makes them tick if you just listen to them. And as we listen to the older brother, we get an indication into the second observation here. He's distant. My daughter's feeling my sermon right now, if y'all want to know what that baby noise is. Let's go, Amber. He's distant. Verse 28, his father went out and pleaded with him. Obviously, he's distant in the physical sense. As we've already seen, he's out in the field, which is why his father had to go to him. But for a moment, let's just think about what he was physically distant from. The party, the music and the dancing, the feast of the fattened calf. Seeing and celebrating his long-lost brother. He was missing out on a rare celebration with his co-workers. The other servants in his father's estate. Not to mention enjoying all of that with his father. Whose joy was the very source of the party in the first place. You see, he's physically absent from everything that represents goodness. Do you get that? He'd have none of it. He's distant. His dutifulness sabotages his ability to enjoy goodness and to enjoy fun, joy, and happiness. Do you know anybody like that? Maybe it's a sibling, a parent, a spouse. How do you feel when they choose to be distant, when they disengage from joining you in goodness, enjoying fun and celebration? How does that make you feel? And I'll be honest, this is purely conjecture. I mean, this is like a glimpse into how my brain works, but I bet it wasn't the first time that he was distant. 
I get the sense that this was his rhythm, his habit. It was his norm. After all, his father pleaded with him. When's the last time you had to plead with somebody? Part of the meaning of the Greek word translated to plead here is to beg. Let me ask you again. When's the last time you had to beg someone for something? You only have to plead and beg when someone has their mind made up against you. And that doesn't just happen in an instant. That's what I want you to see here, that he's distant, but it's not only physical, it's relational. It's emotional. It's psychological distance. You may be thinking to yourself, where do you get that from? Think about it. We behave based on what we believe. Does that make sense? We behave based on what we believe. When we think we're in danger, we act frantically. When we think we're secure, we open ourselves up. We let our walls down. When we think we're unsure, we pull back. We get more reserved. Behavior is a byproduct out of belief. We act out of what we think. Or as the old King James Version proverb says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. First, belief. Then behavior. As I mentioned a few moments ago, I think it's fair to speculate that his sense of self was fragile. After all, when his duty doesn't result in what he thought he deserved, he caved in. He lost it. He goes AWOL, abandons. He's isolated. That's why I'm saying he's distant. Obviously, there's the physical distance that we saw. But again, it's, it's deeper than that. It's emotional, psychological, and relational. So what is at the root of his distance? What's really going on? This brings me to my third observation. He wants what he thinks he deserves. Again, it's fascinating what you can find out about someone, about their psyche and what makes them tick if you just listen to them. So let's listen to the older brother. In verse 28, we find out that he's angry. What's he angry about? This this is the beautiful thing about anger, is that even though it's not nice, you often find what people are really upset about, right? When they spaz out, when they finally tell you the truth, whoa, but now I know. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. When this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. What about me? There it is. Now we can get somewhere. He can't see past himself because he feels like he's getting ripped off. Somehow, he's interpreted his father's generosity towards his brother as a threat to what he thinks he's going to get or what he deserves. But that's wildly irrational, and I want to make sure you understand why. Last week in my City Life group, we talked a little bit about context and culture and trying to understand how that ties into the Scripture. In Jewish culture, the older brother, the first son, would have been the principal heir of his father's estate. As principal heir, he would have received a double portion of the inheritance. You'll remember last week we saw that the younger son asked for his portion of the estate. In response, his father divided his property between them. Again, this gets at that same principle. His portion as second son was one-third of the estate. Whereas the older brother, receiving double the portion, got two-thirds 
of his father's estate. But there's no indication that anything about the inheritance structure had changed. All that had happened is that the younger son had cashed out. And really, I think that's in his benefit. I mean, the father isn't finished working. He's not retired. He's going to continue to make and grow wealth. And all of that will fall to the older son. He'll actually get more out of the deal since his younger brother had cashed out. But the bottom line is, he's irate at his father's generosity. That's because of my fourth observation here. He's disoriented. He's disoriented toward his brother, toward himself, and toward his father. We see it as it relates to his brother in verse 30. This son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes. Whoa, bro. Who said anything about prostitutes? He doesn't know what his brother did. The fact of the matter is he didn't even know that his brother was back. He hadn't spoken to him. I'm sure his brother hadn't sent a postcard. He went to a far and foreign land. He had no idea what was going on with his brother. He's disoriented and he continues in his confusion because he assumes the worst. He doesn't give the benefit of the doubt and he doesn't ask a clarifying question. Help me understand. Here's a quick side note. That's like the holy trinity of conflict resolution. Jeff will charge you for this. I'm giving it away to you free. This is what he says. Assume the best, give the benefit of the doubt, and ask a clarifying question. Help me understand. But instead of practicing self-awareness and conflict resolution, the older brother spins a self-fulfilling narrative and makes his brother out to be a monster. Do you know why he does that? As he continues spinning downward, he has to avoid seeing himself and checking himself. He has to avoid apologizing and slowing his role. He doesn't want to see himself, so he has to make up lies about his brother to justify his outlandish behavior. Isn't that all too commonplace? I mean, how many of y'all got in that argument this morning on your way to church? That's the plot of movies and good books. When bad gets worse and worse becomes terrible. It is commonplace. And if we could do it all over, we'd save ourselves heartache and regret. But as the proverb says, pride comes before the fall. Not only is he disoriented toward his brother, he certainly is. But he's disoriented toward himself and his father. So to reorient the older brother to himself, his father has to remind him of who he is which he does when he calls out my son and reminds him, you are always with me. You are my son. For whatever can be said or observed about the older brother, the origin of his identity is based in the will and activity of his father. You are always with me. You're my son. You're always with me. Remember who you are. To reorient him to his father, his father tells him, reassures him, Everything I have is yours, man. Stop tripping. All that I possess belongs to you. You don't have to be worried. You are always with me. Even when you're working to prove yourself, everything I have is yours. You are always with me, even when you're retreating from me, running away from me. Everything I have is yours. You are always with me, even when you're raging against your brother, who's my son that I love exactly as I love you. And all that I have belongs to you. You're always with me. 
and everything I have is yours. You'll remember that I asked you to make a mental note about the phrase older brother. The classification older brother directly relates to the younger brother and not the father. Did you get that? I think this is a stroke of genius on Jesus' part. And I don't know if you ever think of Jesus as a genius. After all, that's the reality. The older brother is consumed with comparing himself to his brother. And he's completely blind to his relationship with his father. See, what the father is really pleading with the older brother about isn't so much joining the party, but joining the fellowship, joining the intimacy, joining the relationship that he always extends to both of his sons. Both sons, plural. Sure, the younger son wandered physically, but as we saw last week, his father was still looking for him longing for him, and when he saw him on the horizon, he chased after him, embraced him, kissed him to assure him of his intimacy, love, and fellowship with him. And here, we see much of the same thing. Even though the older brother didn't physically wander, his heart has got to be at least as far as the younger brother traveled. As the famous saying goes, not all who wander are lost, and this is what I'm saying, not all who stay home are found. Both sons are in desperate need of their father. As the creator of their relationship, as the sustainer of their relationship, the reconciler of their relationship, the assurance of their relationship, neither son was any of those things. They needed their dad to be all of them. And I say that we're in the exact same position right now, all of us in desperate need of our father, in need of being reoriented in our relationship with ourself, with others, and with God. I was talking to the band this morning before the first service started, and this thought came to mind. It wasn't in my notes. Many a Christian think that God's whole purpose, his whole activity, his will is about reorienting men and women to himself. That is certainly a part of it. But Christians will be reoriented, properly placed in a relationship with God, and then they'll just think, I don't have to change my relationship with myself. I don't have to get healthier. I don't need to address my issues, my toxicity, my drama. And I certainly don't have to reorient myself in relationship to the people that are around me. We think that somehow God's only concerned about our relationship with him. He's concerned about our relationship with ourselves, man. He heals our relationship with him and he wants us to experience personal healing. I don't know if a preacher's ever told you that, if a pastor's ever told you that, but if you think that God only wants to make you and him right and leave you in your mess, that ain't it, man. And from our personal healing, that's how we get healthy in our relationships, right? That's how the older brother got healthy in his relationship, potentially with his younger brother. God wants us healed in our relationship with him so that we can receive personal healing and interpersonal healing. And that reorientation has been accomplished thanks to a third son. He's not mentioned explicitly 
in this parable. But the third son is the son of God, namely this Jesus of Nazareth, who we were singing about a minute ago, born of a virgin who lived and loved, whose life recorded throughout the Gospels is beautiful and compelling, riveting and terrifying, who was tempted in every way that we are yet was without sin. The son of God who, unlike the younger son, didn't take his inheritance and run away from his father and waste himself. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, Jesus, the third son, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The cross of Jesus, the Son of God, the third son, is how every man and woman can be reoriented, not only in their relationship with God, but personally and interpersonally healing comes from the cross this son of god is so unlike the younger son and he's so so unlike the older brother as well or the older son see jesus didn't do his father's work begrudgingly in an effort to deserve something from his father to merit something to satisfy his own desire to look better than everyone else. That's not how Jesus operated. No, Jesus, this son of God, the third son, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus worked joyfully, not begrudgingly. This Jesus who said, my father is always at work, and so am I. And what was this work that Jesus was up to? As the third son, it's to seek and to save the lost, to beg and plead, as it were, for younger sons who were far away, but also for older brothers, older sons who were seemingly near, but just as lost as the younger son was. Beg and plead for them to be reconciled to their father. And I realize there are plenty of pious souls out there who don't like the idea of God begging and pleading. So I'm going to transition to another man's thoughts so I can get off the hook. I'm going to bring a long quote up on the screen. Let's consider this. Uh, It's from G. Campbell Morgan's parable of the Father's heart, which I referenced last week. He says, let us reverently climb from the illustration, this illustration of the parable, as Christ intended that we should. This is Christ's picture of God. I dare not have drawn such a picture or made such a suggestion. I believe in a God holy, high, eternal, who occupies the throne from everlasting to everlasting. These human eyes have been so accustomed to associate with that throne and authority and dignity, which bends with difficulty. But he who shares that throne has drawn the picture and says, If you would know, Son of God, wandering in the far country, or Son of God who is lost and close, wasting your substance, remember God with breaking heart how you will be received if you return to him. Then this is the picture. God runs to meet you with an eagerness born of his compassion. You can leave that up. Focus in on that line. These human eyes have been so accustomed to associate with that throne and authority and dignity which bends with difficulty. Loved ones, God does not bend with difficulty. Christ has willingly been broken, willingly 
been broken, not bending with difficulty. Christ was broken for the younger son who was outlandish, who left, who was wasteful, obviously distant from his father. Christ was willingly broken for the older son. Maybe we can see him as the Christian, the religious type, who was close, but so far in his heart from God. Christ's work was not only intended to reorient us to God the Father, it was to reorient us to ourselves, to reorient us to other people, the people who were in relationship with Christian. If you think that God only wants you to be healthy in your relationship with him and is content to leave you in your mess and leave you in your interpersonal mess, you're missing the boat. At another point, Christ is asked by a Pharisee, what must I do to do the work of God? And this is what Christ says. The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. Certainly that belief has to do with our initial salvation. But believe again that Christ wants you to be healthy in a beautiful, intimate, personal, healing relationship with God the Father. Same thing for yourself and your fellow man. Believe that good news. Pray with me. Uh, Father, I am so thankful that you've not been content to leave me in my mess. Boy, what a mess it was. Um, I'm thankful for the healing, the peace, the satisfaction, the joy, the contentment that I have in my relationship with you, Lord Jesus, because of your work on the cross. And God, I'm thankful that you call me inward to see my own issues, to deal with my own brokenness my psychology and my emotions, my feelings and my baggage, the damage that's been done to me, the damage that I've done to myself. You want to heal that. And I'm thankful for that. Out of that healing, you want to heal the relationships that I'm in. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful that as that healing happens, you are shown off to the world. What a beautiful and joyful thing to be healthy personally, to be healthy interpersonally, to have a healthy relationship with God because of the willingness of Christ to be broken for all of us. Christ, we appreciate you. We love you. We want to model our lives after yours and be healed. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The cross changes everything. Our relationship with the Father, our relationship with others, and our relationship with ourselves. Christ's work, completed on his cross, is the source of healing reorienting, correcting, and aligning our relationship with God, others, and ourselves. Be healed for God's glory and your own goodness. Well, thank you again for tuning in. Next week, we return to an annual tradition as we begin a new series entitled City Church at the Movies, where we'll look at three films that have received an Academy Award nomination for Best Film, Lion, Hell or High Water, and La La Land. Join us next Sunday at 9.15 or 11 a.m. We're located here at 314 Market Street in downtown Evansville.